This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with James Curran. James is International Editor of the Australian Financial Review, and he's also Professor of Modern History at the University of Sydney. James joined me to discuss in depth his latest essay for Australian Foreign Affairs magazine. It's called Excess Baggage. Is China a genuine threat to Australia? James talks about Australia's historical relationship with China and how it influences the way Australia interacts with China today. We also talk about the long-held paranoia within the Australian electorate around the threat of China and whether China truly poses a threat in reality. He also explores the role of Australia's close alliance with the United States which is ever encroaching and raising questions around Australia's independence and sovereignty. In relation to this, we also talk about ASEAN, the Quad, AUKUS, and much more. I'll also put a link to the interview with Jeff Raby, which is complimentary in content and which we referenced in our conversation about China. And it's a real pleasure and delight to welcome onto this show for the first time Professor James Curran, who is international editor of the Australian Financial Review and also professor of modern history at the University of Sydney. He's written an excellent essay in the Australian Foreign Affairs Journal or magazine, the October 2023 edition, the title of the essay being Excess Baggage, Is China a Genuine Threat to Australia? It's the question that's been on everyone's minds for many years. It's certainly on the minds of uh, foreign policy people at the moment, but it's um, not just a contemporary concern, of course, as is highlighted in this excellent essay. And I also want to point out that James is an author of books, including his latest Australia's China Odyssey, From Euphoria to Fear, which was published by New South Publishing, and that has also been shortlisted for the Australian Political Book of the Year Award. Uh, of which we'll find out the winner tomorrow, I believe. So I welcome onto the show Professor James Curran. Thank you very much, James, for joining us. My pleasure, Amy. Thanks for having me. I am a big admirer of your work, as I was telling you off air, and um, I think that you've made the Fin Review absolutely essential reading, and it's really great to have your historical insights into contemporary issues and, you know, you're bringing a context that not everyone can necessarily bring to these issues. That's not really the sole focus of your columns, of course. Most of it is built into, you know, a contemporary analysis of what's happening at the moment in foreign affairs and it's a fascinating analysis. So I'm really excited to delve into your thoughts on China, the US and Australia and that uh, relationship, but also the the things that are going on around the sides, and it, I wouldn't say the periphery, but um, there's also you know bodies like ASEAN, the Quad, uh, the Defence Agreement, AUKUS. Uh, there's a whole yes. range of concerns and issues that are tied up and can often get a little bit messy um, when we talk about these issues. But uh, I'm really excited to delve more deeply into it, and I'm glad that we can start with history, as you do in this essay, uh, you actually bring in a very well-known historian of Australian history, Geoffrey Blaney, who has written, you know, a number of books and anyone who studied um, history at uni will be familiar with his work. 
Uh, and you talk about the way that he looked at Australia's relationship with China. You say in 1984 he actually chaired the Australia-China Council um, and that he was really saying that there was a high point of Australian engagement with China in the 1980s, which he said was a, quote, freak phase of our history. Um, he says, since the early 1970s, a calm has descended, a calm almost unique in our history, and our cordial relations with China are a crucial cause of that calm. So I, it feels like a very foreign place now where we are at the moment compared to that moment of calm. And the only kind of moment I can remember in at least my time here on Earth where there was at least some greater sense of cordial relations was when we had mostly a focus on China as an economic opportunity uh, before this anxiety ramped up again around the military threat of China. But there was more of a focus, at least in the business community and the government, on on how we can capitalise on China's uh, economy, its rise, its growth and the positives of China. And I feel like every day I was reading, you know, about how great China's economy is for Australia and there's another conference on tapping into the Chinese market. Uh, it probably feels like a long time ago now, but, you know, things have changed in our public discourse so much. Could you tell us a little bit about this background, this historical context that you've written about in so much detail in your book and that you frame this piece around before we jump into, you know, the contemporary situation? Yeah, sure, Amy. Um, that's a fantastic introduction. And, and it does seem so strange when, when you read a commentary by Blaney in the early 80s that's talking about this kind of strategic calm um, that, that is so pervasive in the Australian strategic debate at that time. Um, and, you know, one of the arguments I make in that essay is that uh, basically there haven't been too many periods in Australia's history from, you know, at least the at least mid to late uh, 19th century, really, uh, where, where leaders and policymakers and commentators and other kind of culture makers can take a sabbatical from strategic anxiety. It's sort of been built in, if you like, to Australia's um, outlook on the world because it is an isolator, or because at that point uh, in, the, in the 19th century, it very much sees itself as an isolated European-derived outpost on the edge of an alien Asia. And it's looking, it's looking up and seeing a threatening uh, Asia uh, that, that, that it thinks wants to sort of pounce on a vulnerable Australia. And, of course, it's worried about um, its uh, great protector at that time, Britain, becoming involved in a, in a European war so as not to be sort of too concerned about Australia's Pacific um, security. I think the key point, as you say, sort of in the 70s and 80s, and what Blaney is referring to, I think, is that, I mean... <clears throat> Basically, by the early 1970s, the Cold War had effectively ended in East Asia, right? Now, the Americans had suffered a humiliating defeat in Vietnam. Uh, you had American President Richard Nixon actually trumpeting the virtues of a multipolar world. That's not to say that the superpowers, Russia, the Soviet Union and the United States, were still capable of annihilating each other with nuclear weapons, but by and large, the epicentre of the Cold War was really still sort of located in Europe. And Australian governments, firstly Gough Whitlam and then Fraser, albeit with with different um, with with different kind of uh, language around what they were trying to do, 
really tried to sort of fashion a more independent and self-reliant Australian foreign and defence policy posture. And both political parties at this point were agreed that the priority of Australian government should be comprehensive engagement with Asia. Now, Japan was the flagship uh, of that and had been since the late 50s when the Menzies government signed a commerce treaty. But by the 1970s, with Whitlam going to China in that euphoric visit of 1971 as opposition leader and then as prime minister in 73, um, really what happened then towards the end of the 70s, because Fraser followed Whitlam to China, uh, again, had a different sort of interpretation of the China opportunity, which we can talk about if you like. Yeah. But critically, it's that decision by Deng Xiaoping to embrace aspects of market capitalism in China. And Australian governments think they can see what an opportunity this, this might bring for the Australian economy. Um, China is about to undergo the, the sort of modernisation uh, of its economy as they see it. That's what Europe went through in the late 19th century. Australia sees huge opportunities there. And I think, I think whilst... Whilst there were some in government who at the same time were saying, this is fine, but let's just not lose sight of the fact that China is huge. If, this, if they're able to pull this off, they'll become very powerful and we may, we may have strategic problems down the road. Nevertheless, um, that sense of equilibrium in Australia's immediate strategic environment, you've got to remember, Whitlam says we don't face, we don't face a threat for the next 10 to 15 years. Right. Mm. Um, Malcolm Fraser is a bit different. He sees he sees a Russian around every single corner, um, <laughs> and and in every ocean around Australia. <laughs> um, uh, but but there is a sense in which Australia can sort of take advantage of of the East Asian economic miracle, and China is seen to be the next kind of flying goose to take off, if you like. They were known as the flying geese economies. You know, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan are all taking off and um, China was the next one to, see, to be seen to be taking flight and Australia wanted to, wanted to um, hop on top of those wings and fly with it in terms of its economic, its economic potential. Absolutely. And I know we've, we've had the 50-year uh, anniversary of the establishment of diplomatic relations between Australia and China last mm. December, December 21, 1972. That's mm -hmm. when that was initiated. So... I mean, it almost surprises me that it was 50 years ago and not earlier. It seems quite late. But I'm also interested, when you mentioned there Malcolm Fraser, I remember before he passed away going to a book mm. launch of his and hearing his change of tone and mind around this issue was also quite fascinating. You know, his position right. on Australia's independence, foreign policy independence and, mm. you know, it was just kind of amazing. I almost felt like I was sitting watching Paul Keating speak but I wasn't. Yeah. What yeah. are your thoughts about some of those those prime ministers you mentioned there and how they've kind of evolved their position on China and Australia's position or relationship with the United States? Yeah, great question. I mean, Fraser, what an extraordinary um, intellectual odyssey he, mm. he embarked on. And, I mean, you know, I suppose there would be people on the right who can't recognise the Malcolm Fraser that they grew up with um, or at least some of them grew up with uh, in the in the 60s and 70s and the 80s. But, you know, um, there is obviously merit in someone reassessing the strategic environment uh, and changing their views accordingly. Now, you know, there's, there's Malcolm Fraser. I mean, Malcolm Fraser saw 
saw the American decision to recalibrate its position in Asia as almost a greater betrayal than the British letting Australia down at Singapore in 1942. Mm. He He felt very aggrieved by the fact that Australia had been so supportive of the United States in Vietnam And then more or less, it was sort of basically saying to its Asian allies, you've got to stand on your own two feet. Now, when he when he becomes prime minister, his view of China is, well, I can actually I can actually use China to try and push up against the Soviet Union. I can use China as part of a Western containment strategy to um, to unsettle the Soviet bear. And he actually he proposes a quadrilateral pact, would you believe? We talk so much about the quad today. Yeah. This was a different quad. This, this was Australia, the United States, the US and China uh, trying to gang up on the Soviet Union. Now, it didn't come to pass, but the point about it was that Fraser proposed it without checking with Washington, and that was almost unheard of in that period, mm-hmm. uh, that Australia would propose something independently of consultation with Washington. So even though it didn't come off, doesn't mean it wasn't an independent policy um, seeking something for Australia's interests. Now, I think, um, you know, there is a sense in which since the difficulties in our current relationship with China began, uh, there's a sense in which people have wanted to sort of wash, basically wash everything prior to the coming of Xi Jinping. Mm. So that's 2012. They want to wash the entire lot in this kind of, you know, like sepia. And it's all become irrelevant because the the cliche is that those leaders and their advisers became duped by the China market. That they saw the the dollar signs sort of ringing in their in their eyes, like a sort of a like a like one of those Tom and Jerry cartoons that we all grew up with. Yeah. Um, and that they they therefore left Australia vulnerable before the Chinese advance. And, and as I tried to show in the book that I've written on this relationship, you know, that is just such a, a mischaracterisation of each of the prime ministers. I mean, Gough mm. Whitlam, for example, Gough Whitlam, Gough Whitlam wrote a 10-page letter to his first ambassador to China, Stephen Fitzgerald, and said, look, the Chinese, we've got to realise these people are hard-headed. If they sniff weakness, if they sniff that we will bend over too easily and, and bow to their concessions, they will take advantage of us. So you have to navigate a path between sort of hard realism and and constructing a working relationship. Um, you know, Bob Hawke, uh, you know, got got the mother of all sort of reality checks. You know, having having worked so hard and very successfully with his ambassador Ross Garner to make that economic relationship with China, particularly around natural resources, uh, really the foundation of Australia's economic prosperity going forward. Nevertheless, um, you know, he thought it's the, the relationship could be a model for the rest of the world. Here's how you do it. A democracy with a communist country, you, you focus on, on common uh, and transactional economic interests. Uh, but he got a reality check with Tiananmen Square, right? Yeah. Um, you know, so I think, um, I think there's been a too easy dismissal of just how much the excitement and the euphoria about Australia developing this relationship with China was trailed often very closely behind by a sense of anxiety, by a sense of trepidation about the kind of strategic challenge that might be lying down the road, right? And this this really starts, I think, in 
1993, 1994, you can really... I mean, obviously, Tiananmen is a huge rupture, but the relationship recovers very quickly. Mm. But from 93 and 94, you know, and into the mid-90s, is that Chinese economic trajectory, you know, it's got the golden skates on. Um, you know, you can already see strategic thinkers in Canberra saying, if they start spending this kind of wealth on their military, then we're in for trouble and the balance of power in the region will be affected. And uh, that, I think, was sort of held off for a little bit. You know, during the Howard period, we really did think we could have the best of both worlds and um, that was a, a fair assessment at that time because China wasn't bearing its nationalist teeth. But um, I think you're right to stress that, uh, you know, these leaders are very interesting in, you know, I guess the, the delicacy with which they've had to handle handle this relationship. Not all have been delicate. I don't... No. I, I would never say Scott Morrison was delicate about it. He did, he, did, he started off being quite delicate, um, but that, that went by the, by the wayside. Um, and there are reasons for that. Yeah, it certainly did. Um, it definitely didn't match the way that Beijing would do things diplomatically, usually. Mm. Um, I was mm. The book I was referring to with Malcolm Fraser was Dan Dangerous Allies from 2014, oh, yeah. if anyone was wondering. Um, such an excellent book. And, James, you also, you know, you brought us up to a point post-Howard where we're thinking of Kevin Rudd as Prime Minister, and you say that mm. by 2009, uh, almost on cue, Australia's mm. official foreboding about China had begun, yeah. and you mark this moment as being the defence white paper. Um, you know, yeah. there's the public version, of course, and the classified version, and then also mm -hmm. some remarks that were made between US Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and mm -hmm. Rudd about needing a plan B for China. Can you tell mm -hmm. us about this moment and how that has set mm -hmm. us on a path? Well, when you look at Kevin Rudd uh, coming into office in 2007, beating John Howard, and remember, of course, that in the APEC meeting that was hosted in Sydney that year, the Chinese president, Hu Jintao, was in attendance and Rudd as opposition leader got up and spoke in fluent Mandarin mm. uh, to, to, to Hu Jintao. And you think of Rudd's background, uh, someone who studied at the ANU uh, on a Chinese history and, and culture, studied with some of the great Sinologists, you know, including Pierre Rickmans, um, Jeremy Barme. Uh, when you think of his experience as a diplomat in Beijing in the mid-1980s, I mean, he was there during the high point of the Hawke government. He saw Bob Hawke's access to the Chinese leaders, uh, which was extraordinary. Um, and you, 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 you recall the arguments that, that Rudd was making as he came into office about how he was the best place to handle Australia's relations, not only with China, but with East Asia generally. Um, you know, it is, it, is, it is amazing to think that the relationship suffered quite a number of difficulties in that period, um, whether it be the arrest of Stern Hu um, and, and other turbulence where sort of Rudd on his first visit to China as Prime Minister before meeting with the Chinese leadership gave a speech at Beidou University in Peking. And he was like a rock star. I mean, the Australian ambassador to China at the time, Jeff Raby, has said that, that Rudd was like a rock star in China at that time. I mean, they'd never seen a Western leader like this come to China, a fluent Mandarin speaker, an expert in China. And here he is giving a speech to students, which, which, which was you know, hugely popular with the students, but he uses this word in that speech, um, this word, Jun Yu, 
which is basically, he says, I'm going to be a friend of China that, that, that can criticise as well. I know you so well that you won't mind if I criticise you where I think you're going astray. I mean, that was broadly the kind of thrust of it. Mm. Now, that didn't go down too well with the Chinese leadership. Um, so the relationship, you know, being in the very skilled hands of a, of a China expert is suffering all these shocks. And at the same time, I think this is the other... This is the backstory that I found running right through um, this period that I looked at. Rudd is clearly aware of American unease at how close Australia is to China. There have been any number of senior US <clears throat> officials and personnel who, over the years, going back to the 50s, Amy, have made their displeasure with Australia's economic relationship with, with China all too clear. Now, I think Rudd was very keen to prove his pro-US credentials to Washington. Uh, I think he went out of his way to sort of tell Hillary, Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State at the time, in that lunch that you mentioned, that whilst he knew China, uh, he wasn't going to be he wasn't going to be beguiled by China. He knew there had to be a plan B involving hard military power to back it up in case China went off the rails. I mean, look, in one sense, I mean, Rudd deserves credit for being prescient because we know that with the coming to power of Xi Jinping, um, China has become more assertive now, you know, and, and, and the talk of... We, we know the talk of being prepared for war is at sort of fever pitch a lot of the time in Washington and Canberra. But just, I think, for, for, for your listeners to be aware that, that, uh, that Rudd, this kind of determination to prove to the Americans that, um, that he was going to be tough on China if he needed to, and this is a way of signalling to America that Labor was also trustworthy on the alliance. Remember, Rudd yeah. comes into the Labor leadership after the um, period... Well, firstly, obviously, Kim Beasley, and the Americans love Beasley, but that <laughs> followed Mark Latham, right? And Latham, Latham was a memory for the Americans of uh, Doc Ebbett and Gough Whitlam, you know, uh, a Labor leader who was talking about a more independent Australian foreign policy but Latham had a particular edge to it. I mean, there was a yeah. crude edge to it, right? Um, but the Labor Party had been attacked by John Howard as being untrustworthy on the alliance, soft on national security. So Rudd wants to go to Washington and say, I can see potentially that we've got a problem with China coming down the track, and yet we need it. We need a plan B. Meanwhile, um, meanwhile, uh, by 2009... And that was a short... Rudd's was a short-lived government. By 2009, the Chinese are sending out their Premier, Li Keqiang, to, to draft a joint communique with Canberra to put a floor under the relationship and to try and just say, OK, we, we, we've had some differences. Um, we, didn't, we didn't like, you know, what you said about um, the anniversary of Tiananmen Square. We didn't like what you're doing on Tibet and the Tibetan leader... Um, you know, we've had problems with an Australian businessman, Stern Who, but let's just try and calm things down and realise that there are very important um, mutual economic interests at stake. There's people-to-people -people ties that have de developed over a long time. So let's just agree on a joint statement that can, that can basically put a floor under those difficulties. And, uh, you know, that's, that's actually to bring it right through to the present. That is currently now, I think, being discussed between the two sides before Albanese's visit, and there's a bit of there's a bit of tension about that, I think. Yeah.
that's very true. There's a lot of similarity between those two moments. And in between those two moments, as we've referenced, there's been a lot of destabilisation, a lot of public um, shots across the bow, especially under the Morrison government, very... um, Yep. Yeah, sometimes I had to double check what I was reading in the newspaper yeah, you know, to yeah. see whether that was actually happening. But, you know, it's some very bad moments where essentially there was a diplomatic freeze, uh, quite mm-hmm. unprecedented. And I wonder, you know, do you feel that that has at least the the anxiety and the the kind of paranoia of that period, mm-hmm. do you think that that's still carrying through to today, even though we have a slightly Calmer diplomatic approach. Mm. That that is that is the question of the hour. I mean, you've really you've really put your your finger on the great sort of strategic problem because I do think, on the one hand, yes, there is no question but that Albanese, uh, Penny Wong, Richard Miles deserve credit for stabilising the relationship with China. You know, they have they they've they've sort of put the megaphone down. They've stopped the bellicosity. They've ceased to bang the drums of war. They've talked about common interests whilst respecting the fact that Australia is going to have disagreements with China now and into the future. Um, mind you, the thing that worries me, Amy, I think, is that you know when you then look, on the other hand, at the, say, Lowy Institute polling, which again showed this year that 75% of those polled believe China poses a military threat to Australia within the next decade... Uh, my concern is that the previous six years uh, of of sort of fever pitch, fear-mongering and scaremongering, uh, and I, I want to be very careful about this, and I'll come back to that in a sec, but that, that this has uh, sunk very deep roots, I think, into the Australian psychology. Now, you and I both know, and many of your listeners will be aware of the long tail of Australia's anxiety. I mentioned it at the beginning of this interview. You know, the fact that from the 1890s we feared Japan, that that, that, that fear did come to reality in the Second World War and that it took Australia a long time after World War II to drop its fear of Japan and that then that fear was transferred in the 1960s in particular to communist China, right? Yeah. That, that a lot of those old tropes have been pricked in the national psychology again and brought brought to the surface and given a new intensity. Now, China actually hasn't helped matters by its wolf warrior diplomacy, by its economic coercion, uh, by the assertiveness in the South China Sea, the bullying behaviour where I think it says, basically saying, look, it's our turn our time in the sun has come, and anyone anyone who is seen to be even mildly pushing back against that is going to cop it from Beijing. And Australia's not the only country around the world to, to cop that treatment over the last 10 to 15 years. So China hasn't helped itself, and it's now embarked on a kind of a charm offensive, in, in particularly in Europe, the Middle East, with Australia, obviously. Not so much in Canada. They've got, um, they've got a few problems there. But, you know, I... I, I the, the, the biggest, one of the biggest issues, of course, over that last six years was the uh, increasing targeting of Chinese Australians. Mm. They became the subject of racist attacks. The, uh, very prominent Chinese Australians had their loyalty questioned in the federal parliament, which, to me as a historian, I think was um, 
you know, deeply disturbing when you think of previous times in Australian history where loyalty has been brought to the fore of our national life. And, and it corrupts the domestic politics. And, it, and it, it, it prevents foreign affairs from being interpreted on its own terms. And to have, to have Chinese Australians being the subject of those kinds of attacks is going to has pulled at the fabric of Australian social cohesion. So that is all of that, I think, is going to take some time to recover. And, look, I think the reality, too, is that you look at what the Albanese government is doing, stabilising, they're about to go to Beijing, and just look, look at the commentary already this week, for example. All those national security hawks in the press, in the think tanks... They are all basically pushing a message. Well, Albanese can't, you know, Albanese can't go to Beijing and look like he's sort of kowtowing. He can't look as if he's giving concessions. He can't do this. He can't do that. Um, they're ropeable about the port of Darwin, uh, that that lease to a Chinese company has not been overturned. I mean, at almost every step that this Labor government has tried to stabilise things, you've got a hawk squawking in the background saying... Ah, but they've forgotten. They've forgotten too easily about what China is really like. So I think you're going to continue to see this kind of uneasy uneasy dance between those who, I think, want to use the bilateral relationship with China to try and stabilise um, an era of strategic competition versus those who will continue to look at this relationship in zero-sum terms and who will say that any concession to China is showing weakness or appeasement. That, that's, that's where we are. And I think that explains why, why as well, Penny Wong and Anthony Albanese are just... They are so cautious. I mean, they fear being wedged by Peter Dutton and his opposition. They fear being cast as weak on China. And um, so, so, you know, hence, hence all the big talk on, on AUKUS. But yeah. will, we ever get, will we ever get the submarines? I mean, I think there are huge <laughs> question marks on that. Very massive ones, yeah, many factors. Mm. Well, mm. I mean, you're talking about there, you know, this dance that Penny Wong and, and Anthony Albanese have to do on a regular basis, mm. and they use this line that they repeat ad nauseum, which I'm going to read out even though it's going to kill me to do it, which is to mm -hmm. say that we will cooperate where we can, disagree where we must, and engage in the national interest. So or always act in the national interest. It often has a, a yeah. kind of slightly form, different formula. But essentially that's what we keep hearing them say over and over again yeah. is, you know, we're going to try and agree where we can, disagree where we must because we have to, you know, stand up on principle. We're a democracy. Yeah. You know, they're not. Um, our values mm. aren't shared values in many ways, mm. but, of course, we'll always act in the national interest. What are your thoughts mm. on their positioning, the way that they are not only using that language, but also Penny Wong, as you've brought up in your work mm. in the AFR and also this essay, she's also um, treading a line and trying to, yeah. you know, position Australia as being closer to ASEAN, trying to yeah. uh, manage and balance a lot of plates in the air at the same time. She is, yeah. I mean, look, I, you know, I, I think... There is, a, there is a dominant language coming out of this government, and the dominant language is about the US alliance. Yeah. Um, it's, 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 it's the Defence Minister, Richard Miles, going to Washington and saying that our military forces are not just interoperable, we've heard that for years, but they're interchangeable. Mm. Um, right? Now, 
we've and we and we hear the the language about AUKUS, right? Um, and you know the fact that the Labor Party decided within a matter of hours, a matter of hours, to back the Morrison government on that plan, the biggest national project Australia has ever sort of um, embraced. Um, now that is, you know, and and the other the other language on that side of the ledger is, of course, the Quad, and that's been elevated to a leaders level meeting. The Americans now see that at the forefront of their Asia policy. Of course, China sniffs a very strong whiff of containment on the breath of the Quad, um, and you have Australia signing a reciprocal access agreement with uh, Japan. You have it attending. Um, NATO meetings, it's part of the new Indo-Pacific Four that meets on the sidelines of, of, of NATO. You know, if you're sitting in Southeast Asia, in a Southeast Asian capital, that is the kind of dominant language that you hear coming out of Canberra. The other language, which I think is important, but it's not as, it's not as strong, mm. is, of course, um, the language about Australia comes to Southeast Asia to listen, not to lecture. We understand you don't want to be pushed to make a choice between the US and China because 80% of your trade is going to China, but you want the United States to stay in the region as a stabiliser. Um, we, we pledge our, our sort of uh, commitment to ASEAN centrality. Um, but that, you know, that is at a time when ASEAN is struggling, struggling with some fairly significant problems in, in Myanmar and Thailand, and it's potentially about, I think, to have another big problem on its plate with, East, with the East Timorese economy and how difficult that is at the moment. Um, so, you know, Penny Wong, I think, is being very sort of adroit diplomatically by, by telling Southeast Asia or, or, or basically putting the line across to Southeast Asia that, look, we don't want you to see Quad, the Quad and AUKUS as sort of part of a containment strategy. We want you to see them as contributing to this broader regional strategic equilibrium. Now, you know, there's lots of different views on this uh, in Southeast Asia um, and, in, and in places like India, for example. Um, it, it, it looks good on paper, but... And this is, this is not a criticism of Penny Wong... It is that I just think the region and the world is so incoherent at the moment mm. that what, what you're going to see instead is um, shifting coalitions along a kind of a central axis of US-China relations, and you're going to see countries move, move around quite a bit on particular issues. I mean, look at India, for example. We all want India to be the big democratic bulwark against China. But I India's biggest strategic problems are with Pakistan and on its border with China. They don't necessarily see strategic obligations in the Western Pacific. And then we want it to be the democratic bulwark, but look at Modi's growing illiberalism. I mean, yeah. the evidence comes out of India almost every week about some kind of clampdown on the press or the opposition. Now we've got a fight with the Canadians, between the Indians and the Canadians, over, over um, you know, a, uh, a, 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 an Indian being allegedly assassinated by um, Indian Secret Service in Canada. Uh, you know, this, this incoherence, I mean, there's a kind of a determination, I think, on the part of a lot of commentators and, and leaders to fit, to fit the strategic circumstances into a nice, neat little box, and you can put a branding around it and call it the New Cold War, 
and you can have authoritarians on one side and democracies on on the other. And okay, that's fine. No one, no one here is really going to defend to the hills uh, Putin or Xi Jinping, right? Um, but what you're seeing is that a lot of other countries are not necessarily subscribing, right, to that no. to that binary. You know, it's like they've ransacked the the, the catalogue of the Cold War and thought, how can how can we best put kind of a you know a nice boundary around what is real in reality uh, an incoherent world yeah they're trying to paper over heaps of cracks and it's so obvious that it's not working (laughs) yeah Yeah. it's not believable um and you know and ASEAN and those southeast asian countries are being very pragmatic and hard-headed and understandably so. And I know that you spoke with Peter Varghese, who uh, is former head of OWNA, was head of DFAT as well over the weekend. It was in your Fin Review column, and you say that he's worried that Canberra is at risk of handcuffing itself to this idea of US primacy. It's something that we know of as a concept for, you know, decades and decades. But this idea that the US will be the the unilateral power, the sole power in the world, I mean, it's already been destabilised by Donald Mm. Trump and, you know, their experience in the Middle East and a whole range of things. But now we've got this situation where, as you quote in your essay, uh, we've got Kurt Campbell, who is essentially Mm. Biden's representative in Asia, saying that AUKUS is locking Australia in with the US for the next 40 or so years. So, I mean, they're trying almost... I mean, like Paul Keating says that Australia waves the marriage certificate around all the time, but it seems like even the US is doing that at the moment. How do you kind of perceive AUKUS now, the role of AUKUS and what America is trying to do with AUKUS? Yeah, well, I mean, at the moment, I would summarise it as pretty empty big talk, to be honest. Um, I mean, if if the Americans were uh, serious, really serious about getting sort of substantial movement on AUKUS, then there would have been, I think, more progress on those technology restrictions in Congress. So, yeah. obviously, listeners understand that there is pillar one of AUKUS, which is the submarines. Pillar two is... Um, a lot of cooperation between the three countries on cyber security, um, quantum computing, um, artificial intelligence, and, and a whole range of other sort of very advanced military technologies. Now, on pillar one with the submarines, I mean, it is very clear now that there is a there is a there is an important element in the U.S. Congress who are looking at the U.S. nuclear submarine production capacity and saying, hang on a minute, we are unable to keep pace with the numbers that we need to keep an adequate battle fleet of Virginia-class attack submarines. So why are we saying we're going to give two to three Virginia submarines to Australia in the early 2030s when we can't actually build enough submarines to replace those ones that we give to Australia? Now, Biden has put together this $105 billion package late last week uh, to help the Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, right? Mm. Of the $7 billion that has been allocated to, to the Indo-Pacific, 3.6 or $3.4 billion is to try and get the US submarine production line humming again. I mean, they've got so many of their submarines in dry dock being repaired, right? So, but I just summarise that because we could go on forever on this. The basic 
brick wall that Australia will come up against in terms of acquiring nuclear-powered submarines by the early 2030s is that we are, we are taking submarines from the US Navy and they don't, at this stage, think they have the capacity to replace them. Now, that is a problem. We will have, uh, Amy, we will no doubt have rotations of US and British nuclear-powered submarines coming to the west coast of Australia from 2027, 2028. I think that will go ahead. Uh, but you've already got the US Congress being given options uh, for other ways of, of assisting Australia in this without giving them submarines. So I think, you know, you put together the problems in the US in terms of all the um, problems in Congress, clearing what's called ITAR, the um, International uh, Tr uh, Trade in Arms Regulations, they are a logjam in Congress as well. This is about the United States sharing its most sensitive technology, right? That's, we already knew about these complications, but they are yeah. taking a long, long time. Then you look at the Australian angle and you say, well, hang on a minute. The Labor government did not put anything in the last budget, right? Their new spending on defence was from uh, savings in other areas of the defence budget. They haven't included anything in the forward estimates for AUKUS. So, and I can say to you that there are already questions, more than questions, there are more than whispers in Washington as to why is it that this Labor government is so big in its talk on defence and yet is showing us so little when it opens up its wallet, right? Mm. Uh, that, that is a... There are people in the White House wondering about this. And I think that will probably potentially be an uncomfortable moment for Albanese privately this week. We won't, we won't hear a thing about it. And it might be that the Americans don't put him on the spot. But, but it is something that they would be watching. Um, it is something they are consistently asking about. You know, can we, can we get this Labor government to, to commit to the kind of expenditure that it needs to on AUKUS? So at the moment, um, you know, and, and look, the Australian public has not been given a proper government statement about what the nuclear submarines are supposed to do. We all know that the reason we're getting them is because they can get faster up into the South China Sea or closer to Taiwan. We all know that. But this government doesn't want to give a public statement. No prime... And Morrison didn't either. There's been no prime ministerial statement to parliament, no major speech, no parliamentary debate, and we don't even know if... From that, that press conference where Morrison got up early in the morning and spoke to Biden and Boris Johnson and announced the whole thing, we don't even know if there is a slip of paper that actually constitutes the AUKUS agreement, right? And then yeah. you've got Miles giving statements to Parliament about sovereignty. Oh, it's fine. We will have complete control over the submarines we get from the United States. But then, as you say, you've got Kurt Campbell blowing it out of the water and mm. saying, oh, just because we give the submarines to Australia doesn't mean they're lost to America. He said that. That's yeah, the yeah. top. They're, you know, they're, they're not lost to America. Oh. So, you know, they... Look, they are, I think, um, they are tripping over themselves and that, that relates to a deeper problem about the relationship between independence and the United States alliance. And that, I think, is what has been lost mm. in the last two and a half decades... Australian governments have lost the ability to be able to say, you know, there are moments where actually we can depart from American interests and yet maintain the alliance. And, in fact, the Americans respect that, right? The yeah. Americans don't want an ally to pat them on the head 
and give them a you know a pat on the shoulder and say, there you go, keep marching into folly. They want an ally that is full of counsel and wise advice and prudence. And um, I think we've lost that ability. I couldn't agree more. Uh, completely in, in agreement. And you say that essentially having these nuclear powered submarines will, quote, make it virtually impossible for Canberra to say no to Washington in the event of war with China in yeah. East Asia. It's a yeah. complete truism. And I mean, maybe we should be using that line, we will co cooperate where we can, disagree where we must and, in, and use our act in our national interest with America as well and, you know, start reasserting some independence. Um, but yeah. you, I was interested when you said charm offensive in China and to take us back to the key yeah. question of your essay, which is, is China a yeah. genuine threat? I mean, you yeah. mentioned Jeff Raby's book, China's Grand Strategy, um, which mm -hmm. I interviewed him about in 2020. He makes some, you right. know, powerful points about how China is not, you know, necessarily seeking to have a massive war in the near future. Mm. It wouldn't be in its national interest and it actually can't and it's too busy fighting uh, you know, it issues on its borders as well. It borders yeah. a number of, of regions, yeah. but it also has struggled with its soft power and it's tried to kind of yeah. assert it. And I, I wanted to tie in a kind of recent development I saw um, where Jose Ramos Horta, president of East Timor, was on RN Breakfast, and he claimed mm. to say that China turned down their requests from Timor-Leste to help develop police and military infrastructure because of perceived Australian sensitivities over China if it was to help out. And I was really mm. interested in that comment because, you know, we've seen so much about the Solomon Islands, for example, and China's yeah. involvement with them. And China, you know, clearly is adapting its strategy here and in, in the region and the way that it's acting. I don't know whether to take it on face value or not, but I'm yeah, really interested in your thoughts know, yeah. on, on that. They're, they're now their way of changing, and is that a real reflection of how they see themselves as a power that they're not interested in, you know, military conflict between Taiwan and themselves? You know, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I, I think, broadly speaking, um, two things. I do think that Ideally, the Chinese leadership, not that I, can I just preface this by saying I don't have a, a kind of channel into Chinese leadership <laughs> thinking, but broadly speaking, I would say their preference is for peaceful mediation with Taiwan, mm. right, but that they will never take the military option off the table. So therefore, Australia and other countries, including the US and Japan in particular and South Korea, um, obviously have to be very watchful and... Uh, I don't know whether Ramos Horta is sort of doing, I guess, playing the same card in a way that he played in Sydney when he visited last year, uh, where he was kind of threatening Australia in a way, with saying that if Australia didn't come to the party in terms of supporting East Timor's aspirations on the Greater Sunrise Project, which is a means of East Timor being able to um, prop up its economy by getting the lion's share of uh, oil and gas mm. profits from the team, team or seabed, uh, that, that if this didn't happen from Canberra's end, that um, he would be seeking help from China, uh, therefore playing on Australian sensitivities because that has been the big thing, as you, as you said, from the, you know, with the Solomon Islands. I mean, again, from the 19th century, that, that, that fear of greater powers getting stepping stones or launching pads 
around Australia's northern frontier um, in the Pacific that could be used as potential bases to attack Australia. That is the number one kind of primal strategic fear, if you like. Um, so I, you know, I do think um, I do think there is there is something to China wanting to sort of present a different image, but to the world. Mm. Um, she said we want to be loved, but then I don't think I don't think Xi Jinping has fundamentally changed his strategic judgments over the last ten years. He continues to build an alternative order for China with the BRICS countries, with the um, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, with the Belt and Road Initiative, um, uh, and he continues to to sabre rattle over Taiwan. I mean, this is the thing we need to worry about: is 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 what what knocks that U.S.-China relationship off off its perch, as it were? It's on an uneasy perch at the moment because you've got belligerents on both sides. Yeah. Some in Washington wanting to bring it on, some in Beijing wanting to bring it on. Even and Biden being economic... very direct, hasn't he? Like in his language yeah. over Taiwan, he has, and he's had to he's had to be walked back three or four times mm. by his by his advisors. So, you know. Um, I, I think I think Australia has to continue to be particularly um, wary and cautious about uh, Chinese manoeuvring and influence in the Pacific. Um, it, it finds it very difficult to compete with the kind of money that that Beijing is throwing at these countries, and these countries, many of these countries, are also, I think, expressing a great frustration with what they see rightly or wrongly, as lingering colonialist attitudes from Canberra and others, um, you know, they would be listening with a very attuned ear to what Xi Jinping says about the China model and the China dream for developing countries, right? So, so again, this is, part of this, this is part of this incoherence, the idea that Australia can simply say, well, the Pacific is its own backyard, um, you know, a statement which in itself... Uh, carries uh, more than a more than an air of paternalism. Um, that that's over. Australia's, you know, as it has been trying to do, um, is stepping up its, its specific engagement, and that is clearly with China in mind. So uh, this is what I think is part of this delicate dance. That whilst we don't need to sort of uh, have images of Chinese missiles raining down on Australian beaches like we did earlier this year in a series in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, um, no-one no one would rightly advise any government to take their eye off, off, any, off any strategic situation that could potentially, um, you know, uh, trouble Australia's equilibrium in this part of the world. So we have to be watchful. Um, there's no doubt about that. But, um, but, I, but I think it's been a very healthy thing that we've, we've dropped this kind of... Um, pervasive paranoia. Yeah, yeah. Well, and we also obviously need to be wary about this idea of sovereignty, which Richard Miles seems, mm. as you mentioned, so relaxed about. But, you know, even if AUKUS didn't come to fruition in the way that we expect, as you said, we've got right. that idea of interchangeability, you know, base oh, yeah. rotations. There's just so yeah. much now that's embedded and enmeshed between the two defence forces. Oh. Yeah. Right. It's concerning and, look, I mean, and, and quite unprecedented. It is. And, look, I mean, you know, and Peter Varghese made this point. He, he understands, uh, as do I, mm. why, 
why Australia is doing more and more with the American alliance, because we've, we've convinced ourselves that we, we can't have an independent defence capability. And Sam Rogovine's recent book is very interesting in this regard. I mean, Sam Rogovine and Hugh White are saying, well, actually, we can. We, we need greater numbers um, of submarines, not necessarily nuclear-propelled submarines, um, but, but there is a way that Australia can do this. But because our history has conditioned us so um, much in terms of dependence, I mean, it is unprecedented. You're right. When you think back to the mid-1990s, the Australian ambassador in Washington, when John Howard became Prime Minister, Australian ambassador was, was instructed straight away to offer the Pentagon training facilities in northern Australia for American Marines. And they said to him, what? Why, why would we want that? There's no reason to do, to do that. The alliance we have with the Hawke and Keating governments is in perfect working order. There's no reason to embellish it in that way. And he was then instructed to go back and offer it again. And again, they said no. But from that period, governments of both persuasions have done more and more, I think, to offer the Americans, as we know, Marines, porting facilities, logistics um, uh, positioning in Australia, material... I mean, this is, I guess, the point I made in that essay. Whether we like it or not, the, the impact of those decisions over the last 25 years has been to lock Australia in to US strategy in Asia. And that's the warning that Peter Varghese has given, is that they may not necessarily be the same interests we have with America, right? And that, that's the risk. Yeah. And um, I don't think that's been given nearly enough attention in the public debate. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we have not given ourselves much flexibility or policy manoeuvrability by hitching ourselves so unequivocally uh, to America's mission in Asia. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it seems hard to extricate. I just wanted to finish by saying, you know, you mentioned there that the submarines deal, you know, this is so unlikely at the moment to get through, at mm. least in a practical sense, even though everyone ideologically seems to want it. So, I mean, the French President Emmanuel Macron apparently proposed to Albanese that they could once again build um, conventionally powered submarines for Australia or even those lower, not weapons grade, nuclear submarines mm. for Australia. So they once again, after being dumped very rudely by yep. Australia, came back to the table and said, well, we could still help you out. And, of course, clearly they were denied. You know, do you think that there is, you know, if Australia decided, OK, well, you know, we're not going to end up, this is not realistic, we can't get these subs, do you think there is this chance or opportunity to use that as a way of becoming more independent, of pivoting in some way and, and not tying ourselves to one country's military technology and capacity? Amy, I think anything is possible. Um, anything is possible. But I would just put the caveat on that um, and say that it will take America to actually walk away from AUKUS before Australia does. Yeah. I, I think the... I think, I think the... Or, or it will be that the Labor government says either we can't afford it or that the restrictions in America have not been lifted or that a future president says... Because remember, we're now... What are we in now? 2023. There's two more presidents to come before 2032 when we're meant to get the Virginias. Mm. Now, if you look at the chaos and the dysfunction in American politics now, I'm not saying that is eternal, but 
um, and you look at the debate in Washington on China, which president, unless they, they suddenly, suddenly pull more submarines out of their production sleeve, which president is going to knowingly sign off on reducing their submarine battle fleet? So I think it's going to take sort of the Americans to say, actually, look, we can't follow through on this. Um, uh, we can do AUKUS Pillar 2, but we can't, mm. we can't do the submarines. If that comes then you might see an Australian government pivot to a French option, for example, back to the French option. But no government of either persuasion here will consciously or knowingly or publicly walk away from that, um, from that AUKUS deal because to do so, uh, it would take great courage. And um, frankly, I don't think that courage is there in the political system because they would worry too much about being seen as traces to the alliance or... They've betrayed America or they've left Australia defenceless. They've, mm. they've given China an opportunity. I mean, you can, you can write the lines now that security hawks would come up with. But um, it's, it's going to take some kind of crisis, I think, in the American system that shows that AUKUS submarines are not... Those Virginians are not happening. And then, I mean, leave aside for the moment the fact that we're meant to be building the new ones with the British. But yeah. uh, that too... That too, that too is a long way off, and and so then we'd be we'd be phasing out the Collins class submarine. We'd be learning how to um, service and port Virginia class submarines, and then supposedly by the early 2040s we get the new trilateral, the SSN AUKUS submarine. I mean, that mm. is that is a lot. That is a lot for the system to be able to to handle when. Frankly, we haven't we haven't got a great record on defence material, you know. Uh, no, so, that's a polite way of putting yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastical, yeah. really, when you think about it. Um, yeah. Thank you so much, James. It's been utterly fascinating speaking with you, and um, this essay is really, really wonderful. It's so coherent and cohesive and thoughtful and. Um, as is all of your writing, especially for the Financial Review. And, um, yeah, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much, Amy. I enjoyed it very much. As, as have I. I've just been speaking with Professor James Curran and we've been talking about his piece, his essay for the Australian Foreign Affairs Journal. It's called Excess Baggage, Is China a Genuine Threat to Australia? And uh, I think you've got just a, a very nuanced answer there, which you probably won't get anywhere else at the moment. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.